This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today on the emdocs.net podcast, we're looking at our final piece in our series on heart failure and misconceptions. Today, we're going to spend some time on heart failure disposition. This is no easy task. There are over 6 million patients with heart failure in the U.S., and over 90% of these patients are going to present to the ED. This results in over 1 million ED visits, and about 80% of these patients are hospitalized in the U.S. What we're going to be focusing on is we're going to primarily start with some rates of adverse events, revisits, and mortality. Then we're going to look at some specific scenarios where the patient should really be admitted. Finally, we're going to look at several potential risk scores that might be able to help you determine the disposition in patients with heart failure. Let's get to it. Several authors have suggested that 50% of patients who present to the ED with heart failure might be able to be discharged after a short period of observation, but this isn't easy. Disposition is very challenging. These patients have multiple comorbidities, they have different precipitating factors, they have a range of cardiac abnormalities, and they also have different presenting signs and symptoms. On the other hand, you also have to consider patients' health literacy, self-care, and the ability to follow up with their primary care doctor or their cardiologist. All of these factors need to be considered when it comes to determining patient disposition. In the U.S., ED discharge rates are around 16%, but in Canada, these rates are around 36%. There have been several studies that have looked at patient outcome after ED discharge. These studies, though, have some really important differences in outcome, including mortality, hospitalization, ED revisits, and even the time period where they looked at outcomes. Some studies looked at seven days, and others looked at up to about a year. These studies suggest that one-month mortality after discharge is around 3 to 4%. Another study found that seven-day mortality was 1.3%, but mortality at one year was around 20%. Comparing these patients with those who are admitted, is also challenging because there are so many differences between these patients. In patients who are admitted, one-year mortality rates are around 30%, and ED return visits are also really high, around 35% at one month. One study compared death at 30 days, hospitalization, and ED revisits among patients who were discharged and those who were admitted. They found that outcomes occurred more frequently in patients who were discharged home from the ED. Return visits to the ED occurred in up to a quarter of discharged patients, with eventual rehospitalization at 30 days in 75% of these patients. Another study found that 7- and 30-day mortality was similar among those who were discharged from the ED versus those who were hospitalized, though the discharge group overall did better in terms of morbidity. Again, there are many issues with these data, including multiple confounders, but it does bring to attention the importance of robust means of risk stratification and the need for appropriate disposition in patients with heart failure. There are consensus guidelines on diagnosis and management of heart failure, but there are really few recommendations concerning which patients could be discharged from the ED. This is where we think a score might be able to help us, but to this point, derivation and validation of these scores has been really difficult. Several scores for heart failure evaluate risk of adverse events and the need for admission, but these are based on large administrative databases and they're not based on prospective studies evaluating discharge from the ED. Many of these scores have been derived and even validated in hospitalized patients, and they don't typically include patients who are discharged from the ED. These scores don't evaluate patient status after ED management, 
and most of them predict mortality alone. They don't look at the need for admission, symptom relapse, ED revisit, need for airway procedures, or myocardial infarction. The first patient subset we're going to look at are those with new onset and decompensated chronic heart failure. Up to one-third of acute heart failure patients have no prior history of heart failure. Patients who are presenting with new onset heart failure really need to be admitted. They require an expanded evaluation that will help with their long-term prognosis and their management. These patients will need a formal echo to look at their ejection fraction and also look for any valvular dysfunction. They also benefit from monitoring to look for any dysrhythmias. The other patients who will probably benefit from admission are those who present with aortic stenosis and heart failure and those who have heart failure with chest pain. For patients with previously diagnosed heart failure and acute decompensation, we need to look for an underlying etiology. We need to consider valvular dysfunction, ACS, as well as dysrhythmia. Also, the pace of decompensation needs to be considered. What I mean by this is that those patients who have an acute sun exacerbation probably have a serious underlying cause. Another important issue is the degree of chronic dysfunction of the heart. Patients with less severe chronic dysfunction tend to have fewer adverse events compared to patients with profound chronic dysfunction. The other issue that you need to think about are comorbidities like long-term organ failure syndromes, whether the renal system or the pulmonary system. Obviously, if patients present with acute decompensation and they have significant hemodynamic changes, respiratory distress, hypoxemia, or if they're toxic appearing, they'll need admission. If they're on vasopressors or even non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, they might need admission to a step-down or an ICU-type setting. Before we get to our risk stratification tools, before we get to any tools for risk stratification, remember, we have to use our clinical judgment. These tools are only meant to supplement our clinical decision-making. Also remember that the absence of any high-risk factors that we discuss does not mean the patient has no risk. It just places them in a risk category that might be more appropriate for discharge from the ED. The scores that we're going to look at today include the Ottawa Heart Failure Risk Score, the Emergency Heart Failure Mortality Risk Grade, and then finally, the Multiple Estimation of Risk based on Spanish Emergency Department Score, or MISI. All of these scores have been derived and validated in the ED setting in ED heart failure patients. Let's start with the Ottawa Heart Failure Risk Score. This was published by Steele et al. in Academic Emergency Medicine in 2013. This was derived and validated in the ED setting to evaluate the risk of 14 and 30-day adverse events. It was developed using a prospective observational cohort conducted across six different EDs. Adverse events were defined as death within 30 days, ICU admission, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, intubation, MI, or 14-day readmission. Authors then evaluated variables that predicted risk of these adverse events. Based on the study, the authors developed a score using the criteria that we'll have in the show notes. It basically takes into account history, exam, and several investigations. Authors finally validated the identified predictors using values of 1, 2, or 3 as threshold for admission. Sensitivities predicting adverse events were 95% for a score of 1, 80% for a score of 2, and finally 65% for a score of 3. The score was validated in an observational cohort study looking for serious adverse events within 30 days of presentation. The study found that 15.5% of patients had an adverse event 
and unfortunately, a concerning proportion of those were in patients who had been discharged home from the ED. A score of over 1 demonstrated a sensitivity of around 92%, but increased admission rates to 78%. When they included nt BNP levels in combination with a score of over 1, sensitivity was about 96%, with an admission rate of 88%, and adverse events occurred in 17.4%. Using a score of 2 or greater had similar sensitivity for adverse events. While the score is objective, there is still some subjectivity when it comes to choosing the one-point versus the two-point threshold for admission. Patients with a score of one are more challenging in terms of disposition because their risk of adverse events is higher, but they could also be potentially discharged home. For example, not all heart failure patients with a prior history of TIA require admission if they have no points assigned for other criteria in the score. However, if a patient has a score of 1 for an oxygen saturation less than 90%, then you should probably think about admitting this patient. This score also uses a walk test after ED therapy, which is kind of a functional assessment of how a patient is doing after your treatments. I actually really like this part of the score. In summary for the Ottawa Heart Failure Risk Score, a patient with a score of less than 1 can be discharged. Patients with scores of 1 or 2 probably require admission, but this is at your discretion you need to determine which threshold to use based on patient comorbidities and the available follow-up. The next score is the Emergency Heart Failure Mortality Risk Grade. This was developed and validated retrospectively in a study of over 12,000 patients who presented to the ED with a heart failure. It was also studied in a follow-up Canadian retrospective study across nine hospital EDs involving over 6,000 patients. This risk stratification tool calculates a percentage for seven-day mortality risk ranging from very low to very high, based on age, blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen saturation, creatinine, potassium, transport by EMS, troponin, cancer, and on outpatient metolazone. You don't have to remember all of these different factors. We'll have a table for you in the show notes. The calculator can also be found on MDCalc and a website. The seven-day mortality risk across the five categories ranges from zero to 12% for very low, and very high risk respectively. There are some disadvantages of using this tool. The first is that it awards 60 points to overall risk calculation for just EMS transport to the ED. Now there are many reasons why a patient would call EMS. It could be due to the severity of symptoms, or it could be just because they don't have an available method of transportation to the hospital. Another disadvantage of the score is that there are five different categories of risk. This makes determining disposition a little bit more complicated. The MISI score was derived and validated in ED heart failure patients. It breaks patients down into low-risk, intermediate-risk, high-risk, and very high-risk patients. The 30-day mortality rates are 2% in low-risk patients versus very high-risk patients who have a mortality rate of over 41%. Factors included in the score are the Barthel Index, blood pressure, age, BNP, potassium, New York Heart Failure Class 4, positive troponin, respiratory rate, low output symptoms, oxygen saturation, episode associated with ACS, hypertrophy on EKG, and finally creatinine. We'll include a table in the show notes for you, as well as a link to an online calculator. Unfortunately, the score does have several disadvantages. Although it is important to determine a 30-day risk of mortality, it might be more useful for us as emergency physicians to have a 7-day or even 14-day risk level. Also, the risk calculator uses some variables that are just not known to us as emergency physicians. It includes things like the Barthel Index, 
and the New York Heart Association class of the patients. The Barthel Index, in case you're wondering, includes things like feeding, bathing, grooming, dressing, toilet use, mobility, and even going up and down stairs. Let's end with some other considerations before the patient is discharged, and these are primarily social issues. Patients have to be aware of several factors. First, they need to be able to follow up with their primary care provider or their cardiologist. They need to understand signs suggesting the need for return to ED, things like shortness of breath, chest pain, systemic congestion, and hypoperfusion. They need to be compliant with their medical therapy and also avoid medications that may worsen heart failure, things like NSAIDs. They need to avoid tobacco and alcohol and then understand the importance of lifestyle modifications like healthy diet. Finally, they need to monitor their weight periodically. If they're going to be discharged, close follow-up within one week is absolutely essential. Multidisciplinary care that incorporates dedicated heart failure teams or clinics can help you optimize care of heart failure patients. If this type of dedicated team or clinic is not available, then make sure to arrange a follow-up appointment with their primary care physician. In summary, determining disposition of heart failure from the ED setting is no easy task. Patients with new-onset heart failure will benefit from admission. Patients with sudden, severe worsening of their known heart failure will also benefit from admission. If you have a patient who's otherwise stable and looks appropriate for disposition, then you might be able to use a risk score as a supplement to your medical decision-making. Scores validated in the ED setting include the Ottawa Heart Failure Risk Score, the Emergency Heart Failure Mortality Risk Grade, and finally, the Multiple Estimation of Risk based on Spanish Emergency Department Score. Also keep in mind those social factors that really play a significant role in patient outcomes. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.